1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Alfie Baun about his new book, Dream Lovers Capitalism and the Gamification of Relationships. We are in the middle of a desire evolution, a fundamental and political transformation of the way we desire as human beings. Perhaps, as always, new technologies with their associated and inherent political biases are organizing and mapping the future. Our very impulses, drives and urges are gamified to suit particular economic and political agendas, changing the way we relate to everything from lovers and friends to food and politicians from sex bots to VR simulators and much more. The book we are talking about today considers these emerging technologies and what they actually mean for the future of love, desire, work and capitalism. Alfie,
0: welcome to the show. Thanks, Rudolf. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here.
1: Now, I wonder if we could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, Of course, including your favorite game and the one, or even the ones you're playing right now.
0: All right. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, um, you know, I did a PhD in in literature and film, basically, um, and um so i'd always been i'd never i'd always been a gamer you know played games since sort of seven or so i, I play less now i have to say um but um you know since a young age yeah and then uh, but i hadn't really thought about like get, taking games seriously let's say as a topic or whatever and it was really around 2014 i'd finished my phd just that year um i didn't really i was a little bit disillusioned i suppose with liter- literature studies and, and had a feeling that they weren't perhaps as sort of politically and culturally as important as i had been led to believe um, by my sort of liberal arts university. Um, and around that time you had this kind of Gamergate saga uh, and and it kind of uh, in the run up to the Trump election, you know, this kind of massive swathe of attention to video games and everyone suddenly starting to worry about the influence and power of games on contemporary society. And obviously as someone who'd played games like my whole life, I, I decided I would sort of pivot my uh, career, I guess, and actually try and think about what the politics of games is and, and how how games influence and shape the society we live in, um, and and so I did I did a book called The PlayStation Dream World, which was really just an argument that socialists or leftists need to be uh, actively engaged with video games and and take them very seriously. Uh, And then this new book that we're talking about today is a kind of expansion of that to think about the idea of gamification and basically how to a certain extent like gaming algorithms, logics, structures are dictating what society is today. So this is like my, my thing really. Um, as for like my favorite games and stuff, I think like it's best if I give the honest and least cool answer. Uh, the game that I've played the most is Football Manager. Uh, now in in gaming communities, this is like the most embarrassing possible answer. Um, but uh, you know, and I, I have indeed tried to write about this and defend it and so on. But um, yeah, and and most recently, I'm really interested in that the game, this uh, game Stray with the little cat in Hong Kong that people have been waiting for for a long time. I don't know if you've heard of this. You basically explore a dystopian city from the perspective of a cat. Um, it, it 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 wasn't, I think, what uh, I was hoping it would be actually, but I still think it's quite an important sort of game for this like this moment, I guess.
1: So you you could you could argue that this is a very actually it's a very sounds like a very broad range of games then from from the manager the simulation aspects to to uh, to strolling through this uh, I think it's a post-apocalyptic version of
0: uh, of it's Tokyo no but it's a metro, metropolitan era right mm, exactly no I mean it's it's I I think it, it's um it was originally going to be the Kowloon walled city. Um, you know this this um, amazing historical place that um, you know it was knocked down by John Major's government in the when you when the UK left Hong Kong um, in the years around that handover in in the mid nineties. But this this place, the Kowloon Walled City, was this kind of real life dystopia where, uh, or or as depending on how you look at it, you know people were living in there. There were some people that hadn't left the city and seen daylight for like years because it had everything inside you know it had shops restaurants dentists doctors all living in this kind of almost fa- favela like structure uh in the middle of hong kong um so one of the things i was thinking that stray initially uh, i think it was part of the project was to kind of explore this like cr- critical kind of historical city which was like a critical part of capitalism and and of international global politics and so on but i mean the game itself actually it, it, it's just it could be anywhere. It could be Tokyo, as you say. It's not actually really uh, delving into that so much. But but it's still uh, really interesting for, for a lot of reasons.
1: I see. Well, um, uh, circling back to uh, dream lovers, um, tell us a bit more. I'm intrigued. How did you come to write it?
0: <laughs> I mean, in some ways, one of the answers I, I sort of give to that is, is that in some ways, this book is like the story of my divorce. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, (laughs) four years ago uh, or whatever uh, something like that three and a half four years ago separated from my ex-wife and decided to sort of try and replace my relationship with a piece of technology somehow (laughs) and uh, partly this was a a genuine uh, and partly not you know so what I tried to do was basically I've I've always been very interested in this kind of question of gamification and 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 in particular the gamification of friendships and relationships you know so to what extent are friendships and relationships today, um, not just relationships with another human being, but also relationships with technology. Um, So for example, you might have a partner who you spend a lot of time talking with on WhatsApp, right? They're still a real person on the end of a phone somewhere, but large chunks of the relationship are mediated through these new kinds of interactions and so on. A great book about this is um, a sort of memoir, critical novel called The Disconnect by an Irish writer, Rasheen Kibbert. I really recommend that about how things like everything from Gmail to Facebook plays this important role in, in shaping relations and so on. Then on top of that, on top of those kinds of technologies, we could which are also dating apps would be an example, like technology which so-called connects people to each other, you've also got uh, another strand of 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 technology where the human is supposedly sort of replaced by a digital object of some kind, whether that's uh, a virtual reality partner or a sex robot or a, um, you know, AI chat bot or something like that. So what I wanted to do really was just really throw myself into these kinds of relationships, you know, in order to research, but also with an open mind to see how I myself responded and and whether or not and to what extent I felt these were um, you know the relationships of the future? They were capable of sort of replacing a human in your interactions and so on. And to what extent I thought they weren't and so on. Um, so you know, I think it's fair to say I went into this with with an open mind. I tried all these things. I started going to sex robot shops and brothels. I started going to virtual reality pornography places, which I'd never even watched pornography before. Um, uh, I started getting. A, I got a VR partner on my um, PlayStation headset, the the VR headset. I got an AI chatbot um, partner partner on my phone and started playing online, trying on all the different online dating apps whatever, just to try and sort of think through what's happening here. And I suppose that's one answer. And the other answer is that, you know, this comes from my interest in psychoanalysis, basically. And I think of, to put it in the most sort of simple way, um, you know, I think psychoanalysis is mostly about understanding drive, and that means I mean, there are other words maybe we could use here that are just not quite right, like feeling, emotion, affect, desire, love, whatever. These are the things that psychoanalysis is interesting, right, interested in. And for me, psychoanalysis should be, and it's not always this, it should be the study of how capitalism impacts us on the level of drive, so uh, it, it should be like thinking about we live in this new world of, of hypercapitalism, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but then in, why do we need psychoanalysis here to understand how we feel in this system and why we feel the way we do. So I also wanted to explore the way that friendships, relationships, desire, love, impulse, whatever, were being um, RB are, 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 are making us feel and respond in a new kind of like what some people call platform capitalism, let's say or tech capitalism or whatever we might want to call.
1: It. Yeah. Now if we try to 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 break down your very intriguing and interesting book, uh, we enter this world via its first chapter, of course. And in your very first chapter, you talk about the increasing role of data, in the organisation of relationships, and I wonder, could you uh, please define that very role for our listeners?
0: Yeah, I mean, actually, that that ended up being the most complicated bit somehow. It's, um, just, um, but the 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 thing of the thing I wanted to say about data is that well, this is then this is like this um, sort of touches on a whole uh, ideology of tech propaganda, really, that wants us to see ourselves as. That reflect as the data sort of reflecting us. So for instance, I, I'm sure people would remember when um, the facial recognition software was accused of being racist or something. Another example would be a Cupid, you know, from the realm of dating where, you know, they were, um, there, there was this guy who, who um, he, he was like kind of data miner, uh, the kind of 4chan bro type, um, far right, alt right, whatever he called himself who tried to use the data from OkCupid to um, uh, prove a kind of eugenics, basically. But anyway, to cut a long story short, OkCupid was actually matching white people with white people and so on. I'm not saying whether this is wrong or not, but but the point is with these things, the technologies kind of inherit uh, an existing bias, right? So um, the defense that OkCupid gave is, well, you guys are the input, you create the data, all the users, so we're not responsible or ever. We just, um, we, we just respond to what you want. It's much the same as Deliveroo or Uber Eats functions. I'm not sure what kind of delivery apps you have in Germany, but like they, they basically function by working out what you want and then giving it to you. Now, what, what this does, though, it means that the company has a kind of diminished responsibility for this because when something becomes an algorithm, it doesn't just... It, it takes on a new status. It becomes the norm, right? So, for example... If there is, let's just say, for example, a racial bias inherent to the data set, let's say it's us, we're the data set, uh, then the algorithm picks that up and enshrines that within the algorithm, right, but still claims to be a reflection of people's existing desire. So in other words, and this is again, you could think of in a psychoanalytic sense, we are uh, tricked into an illusion that these apps are giving us what we want, when in fact they are telling us what to want they're they're setting up a new norm of of how desire functions and and then then we have to desire within this new economy so let me give you an example of that which just proves the point really it's one of my favorite stories I mean people who have heard me on other podcasts have heard this already but I think it's an important one so in like um in 2018 or something I was I was working on WeChat you know the um uh, app, but from Tencent in China, which is really one of these one of these really dystopic um, future cities apps that's really trying to push the boundaries of how to, um, you know, make people behave in the smart city of the future. Um, and I gave a talk saying how evil these people were. And then at the end of the talk, this was in Hangzhou in East China, a couple of um, Chinese men in suits came up to me and I thought, like, oh, God, these are lawyers or something. <laughs> and um, but they weren't. They, they turned out to be employees from Alibaba, which is Jack Ma's company. And it's based in, in Hangzhou in East China. Right. So um, and they said they said to me, oh, you you hate you hate Tencent. You hate Tencent. And I was like, yeah. Uh, and they were like, we're Alibaba. You know, you maybe you love us. Uh, and I was like, no, that's not how it works. You know, I hate- <laughs> <laughs> no. Anyway, these, these lovely people. Would you like to come on a tour of Alibaba's headquarters? It's called Cloud Town in Hangzhou, outside Hangzhou in East China. Amazing place. They, I went there, they showed me all the technologies they're designing. They're trialing something there called the City Brain, which is basically how they would want a smooth functioning, smart city of the future to, to operate. Um they are showing me all sorts of things. They showed me these traffic lights, which count the wrinkles in your face and then decide how long you're going to take to cross the road, depending on how many wrinkles you've got, things like that. Um, and I said to the guy, like, what's the most amazing thing you've got? <laughs> and he said, oh, it's this car. Uh, and so it's this car joint, jointly manufactured by the German car manufacturer. I think they're German called Rover and Alibaba um, themselves. And uh, I said to him, OK, so what's impressive about this car? And I was expecting him to say, it's fast, it can't crash, it looks cool, I don't know, it can fly. But no, he didn't say that. He said, it knows knows when you're hungry and what you might like to eat before you do. Now, at the time, I didn't think that much of this. um, But basically how it works is, you might fancy a chicken burger on Wednesdays at four o'clock, but you don't know that. But the phone syncs with all your smartphone data. It knows it reads all your pictures. It reads your reviews. It reads your GPS. It knows where you've been and what you do at certain times. And just about 10 minutes before that desire tends to appear in you, the phone says, the, the car says via the phone, why don't you let me drive you to this place and try this new chicken burger or whatever. Um, and so I said, okay, so why do you want to do that? Why do you want to give people this service? Because it's not possible to believe, right, that Alibaba are just so generous and kind. They just want everyone to be as happy and fulfilled as possible all of the time. So and that, so what we do is we redirect people from places who use Tencent WeChat Pay, the Tencent Payment Method, or places that take cash and, and reroute them into restaurants which take Alipay, which is their own Payment Method. Now... now that might not sound like you're in the dystopian future but you are because what's actually happening here and this i hope hopefully answers your question about the data and the sort of role of it now what's happening here is that you're being nudged i mean in social media terms we also often call this nudging you know which is when somebody is is not just understood it's what companies like cambridge analytica and palantir do you know these kind of uh, mercenary um, surveillance companies that use data data driven solutions to produce certain outcomes and in this case the outcome sure it's not major it's just designed to drive a little bit extra profit to alibaba but this role of data in relationship to desire and this possibility of nudging opens out into a whole system it it actually threatens the concept of democracy i mean you know because what you do what you absolutely have is a small number of powerful people setting the paths and behavior patterns of everyone else and that's that's what gamification is for me and why it's important to sort of think about gamification and, and so on
1: So it's not only about chickens, dear
0: listeners. (laughs) It's
1: not about about innocent chickens anymore. (laughs) Well, you were mentioning the term uh, city before. So uh, uh, being a not so urban guy anymore, I was very intrigued then by your second chapter that puts obviously the concept of smart cities into the middle of your readers attention and you describe them as new spaces of desire could you please elaborate on that a little bit
0: yeah i mean so i suppose i suppose um I, w- I wanted to think about this idea of a smart city, and that—that that is why I was in Hangzhou in East China, there looking into those things and and thinking about how. I mean, in East Asia, there's quite a few interesting examples. Singapore is also interesting in this regard, but then so too is New York and 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 the US and and, and to a lesser extent London. I mean, um, we 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 love these stories of of how China does these dystopic things and how the Chinese citizen is more of a lemming than. Um, the Western one, but that's that's an absolute nonsense. I mean, um, what, another one of my favorite historical things to talk about is Pokemon Go. You know, it's extremely interesting program designed, you know, it's not just a video game at all, but designed to reroute traffic and to, to test how far could Google, who bought the company from Niantic, how far could Google... Um, dictate where people went at certain times you know and, and and say so for example they put poker stops in mcdonald's and did an advertising deal with mcdonald's they also the rarest i was playing in 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 uh, hong kong in the that summer of pokemon go <laughs> 2016 uh, and they put the rarest pokemon in the most expensive shopping mall you know there's a whole strategy here and, and this is in-game rewards come in and things like that so transport for london over here um at a recent meeting um They are are thinking of trialing an in-game reward system, much like that Beijing social credit system that everyone in, you know, the New York Times was sort of throwing its toys out the pram when this story broke about Beijing having a social credit system. But pretty much everything that, that that app is based on is already present in in um, Western technologies as well. And these things are really coming in to, um, you know, our cities as, uh, you know, reward systems, gamified reward systems to, to set the new patterns of of what how we use our cities and spaces. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted to do here was think about how that's changed. I mean, very I was very interested in the work of Guy Debord and the kind of this idea of psychogeography, um, which in the 60s and 70s, you know, was this kind of idea that architecture was having an enormous psychological impact. It's obvious now, right? We don't really need to even go over the arguments, but they, they, they thought that in the 60s and 70s, you could start to see how the architecture of the city was creating a new kind of subject. I mean, someone like Georg Simmel, Very famous essay, the Metropolis and Mental Life, Uh, is really fantastic here and the board as well. But to think about that, if you take this word psychogeography, in other words, how does the city space impact on the psyche? This is also I wanted to do this through psychoanalysis. But I suppose I would say that it's not architecture anymore, but it's apps, it's algorithms and apps and and data-driven solutions, which are the new architecture, which affect how we think uh, and how we move and and so you know the physical routes we take. But also the thought processes we have, and so on, so are, are plugged into this kind of new kind of technological psychogeography, I suppose, which is sort of setting the new behaviour patterns of everyday life, uh, and so on. And I'm not, you know, I'm not against this. I'm not. I'm not saying we should all run away from the technology. That's something I really wanted to be clear about in the book. And what I tried to do, as you've seen, is, you know, I tried to sort of propose ways in which we might use these technologies for kind of progressive or useful, um, you know, mutually beneficial things, uh, instead of using them to just drive profit for Alibaba or get a, um, you know, uh, a new Democratic head of state elected in Iran or something, which is what these companies use this material and data-driven solutions for. But I was thinking, you know, in a, in an ideal world, what would we do? You know, not not live in a forest away from the internet. You know, I'm very much somebody who who believes in that early internet hope that you know the internet could be a new kind of commons and a new kind of. I mean, I don't really want to say the word democracy, but it'll do for, for here. Like a new kind of democratic space, a common a, a commons that we can all participate in, right? Um, so I think that, yeah, we need to uh, see what's happening. And, and the city, your question was about the city. The city is just a space, the key, the, the, the sort of space, um, extreme example of where these things are happening, right? How our cities are being reorganized. Let's A, see that happening, right? And see what these technologies are doing to us at the level of desire. And then B, think about some solutions for how we could actually maybe use these technologies to serve, the, let's say, the common good Rather than just the corporate interests or state interests that they might be serving at the minute.
1: Well, if I if I follow you correctly, then this would also mean that the idea moving away in in uh, in your concept moving away from the cities and um, thinking strongly, I was thinking strongly about uh, the apps. So the cities, if I understand you correctly, would then be only the first stage, because this
0: concept could also be applied to let's say
1: uh more rural, rural environments
0: absolutely yeah i mean and i mean i suppose that's the history of urbanization anyway i mean the city goes first and and then the uh logic of the city expands itself out to to affect everything um so yeah i mean i suppose that's the, the way in which i'm i'm sort of using the city and the smart city uh, it's it's interesting i mean i think obviously lots of work's been done on smart cities and a lot's been said about it um the thing that i'm Saying that as far as I'm aware is not generally part of the conversation is the relationship to desire. You know, I think that the the primary way in which we're being influenced today is through desire. Now, for me that is actually quite an important and and in some ways quite an unusual thing to say because it like I said, it threatens the concept of democracy for one thing. The idea of free will becomes pretty much useless. Uh, agency or autonomy, because those those arguments for me about the subject and its its power to choose, its agency, its free will, its democratic ability to choose, um, they don't stand up anymore in the age of these technologies. And that's that's what I feel about my own desires. If people might disagree with me, but but you know, when I use these apps and stuff, when I become embedded in these systems, when I you know, when you just use them with an open mind and do it without trying to be critical, it's 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 absolutely clear that they're capable of making you think you've made a choice, but you haven't, you haven't really, you know? So, so ideas of free choice, ideas of democracy, ideas of agency are are especially, I'm not saying we should throw them out entirely, but they become, they do very much become threatened in this technological environment where what these programs can do is anticipate what you might want and then use that knowledge to, nudge you in various directions that you haven't necessarily autonomously chosen to go in. So it really means like questioning those kind of ideas of what human society is and so on. And that might sound also kind of dystopian, um, but I think we just need to admit that that this is the case. We don't have um, the kinds of democratic free choice and agency that we have liked to believe we have over recent decades. <laughs>
1: Well, the, the, the simulation of love from games to robots builds the focal point then of your next chapter. And I was almost somehow expecting to read this as your first chapter, especially Ooh. the games aspect is a great read. Uh, please take us through your thoughts here while you were writing this very third chapter then.
0: Is this the dating apps one?
1: <laughs>
0: well, it's you got me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, no, I should I should talk about that, and I, I haven't so much. I mean, um, so you know, um, yeah. Again, um, what I want to do is, is think about how um, dating apps and, and video games. I mean, I tried to look at quite a lot of these different things. You know, that so I looked at the history of dating simulators. Uh, it was very interesting. You get these really this really one trend of. Um, um dating simulators for men uh, and this other trend of dating simulators for women i also looked at that and i was thinking about it recently in relation to these two books of of pickup up uh, the raised the idea of pickup artistry which i did write about as well so you know when i was at university in 2006 um the this book called the game um was extremely popular with some of the more should we say like traditional uh masculine types on campus, um, like, uh, and it was a kind of set of rules that you want one could use to sort of pick up women and so on. Now, um, as, there's also an equivalent, um, for, for women, I think it's from about 10 years later than that called the rules, which I was looking at as well recently. Um, and, um, I mean, I was really interested in how pickup artistry exploded on 4chan basically. And, uh, and in YouTube to a lesser extent, but, so, but, but it was connected to, uh, a sort of Republican conservative politics for America. Uh, there was this resurgence of pickup artistry as a discourse around the last five or six years. And it seems to be very much through platforms like YouTube and, 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 and this connection between the pickup artist and their audience, this kind of parasocial connection. I mean, Jordan Peterson is not actually that far away from being a pickup artist person, actually, <laughs> <obviously>. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but uh, so I was really interested in this and how little pockets of communities develop and so on. Now, let me say what I think is the most interesting thing about this part. So, I expected into to go into this, and I would say, I would say that when I started this book, even when did I start this book two thousand sixteen. So it took a while, uh, and a lot, a lot changes in that time. Some of that's contextual stuff, you know. Obviously, that was the midst of the Trump discourse and so on. But I would say, also personally. I'd describe myself as saying I'm, I'm a lot less woke now <laughs> than I was then and part of that's the experience of doing this book because I very much expected to go into those environments a bit like what's Julia Ebner or, or I mean I suppose it's kind of what happened to Angela Nagel <laughs> but um, but um, like go into these communities online sort of infiltrate them to a certain extent which by the way is nearly impossible to do they, they find me out every single time straight away so these people are extremely aware when there's a sort of liberal in their midst and they want <laughs> they root you out in a lot of Oh my God, that's, 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 that's the undercover stuff. I'm an undercover cop now
1: we're talking about. Yeah.
0: yeah, right. Well, I tried to do that uh, with mixed success. But my, my, my point is I was expecting to come out of these um, places for, um, and be shocked by how uh, awful, let's say, where maybe it was going to be a misogynistic, maybe it was going to be capitalist, maybe it was going to be, um, I don't know, uh, sexist. I'm sure. I'm sure it is those things and can be. But what I found was not that not what I expected. Um, and in one of the communities, for example, I'll give an example to sort of prove this, I suppose. But um, you know, when infiltrating things like those communities, like what they called "men go their own way," um, and these are like 4chan. Um, you know, like things like red pill women. That's another example. Like sort of when I was sort of digging into these things and the kinds of discourse and discussion that goes on in these. For want of a better word like right wing online subcultural communities, I was expecting to find this um you know yeah I, I was expecting to try and criticize this from a from a leftist perspective, but what I found there was was really not that it was that although things were rather you know depressing at certain times, they was extremely similar to the logic of official corporate um capitalist examples of the kinds of apps and programs that are dictating our social life today and our dating life today. So, um, you know, I was expecting to, to, to be like, You know, and our media would would have you believe that the stuff that goes on in these subcultural groups that get dismissed as being, you know, fascist or whatever, without really even having any discussion about it, are radically different to the things that are part of the mainstream norm today. Now, I I found the opposite to be true. The kinds of discourse and discussions and the kinds of ideas about relationships um, were very much the same. So a good example of that, you know, is this thing, um, sexual market value, which gets kind of abbreviated to SMV. There's lots of weird subcultural groups who use this it basically means that each person has a kind of ranking uh, depending on it, it could it, it depends on their appearance largely but it also includes things like wealth cultural capital and so on and people just use this in a gossipy way um, and you know for example I mean there's some things here we might not like you know so um, women for example have this an SMV on these kind of for, uh, on these forums and if if she has had uh, one of the things that goes into this imaginary algorithm is the number of sexual experiences this woman has had Uh, and then uh, you know and uh, maybe um, each relationship can also uh, influence this. We have other phrases like RMT which is relationship market value. So these people on the level of community have created a bizarre odd algorithm for computing the sort of sexual ranking of an individual. Sounds awful, does sound awful but when you start looking at how dating apps that we all use. They're mostly owned by this place called Match Group, IAC, the company's called. I don't know if people are in New York, you can see it's one of the most gross, the only most disgusting building in New York is uh, full of these people working for Match Group, um, and it's uh, they have everything. They have Bumble, Hinge, um, but they have Tinder, but they also have some of the traditional ones. Plenty of Fish, OK Cupid, and so on. If you look into how some of those algorithms function, you'll actually see it's pretty much the same. And my uh, most shocking example, so-called shocking example, is an app called BuyHey, um, which is um. Chinese, uh, Alib- is, is it Alibaba? It's based on the Zima credit score, which is a type of credit score used in China that um, comes originally from the American model. So again, this is not like, um, you know, alarmist, China alarmist stuff, it's just very much everywhere. And what this app does, it, um, it uh, takes your credit score, but it also includes things like um, your social circle. So if you've got any friends that have been arrested, you lose points. If your friends have been um, reported for being at protests, you can lose points. Um, so really, we've got this kind of social credit score going on. And Baihe, the dating app, I think is the third biggest in China. It plugs into this score and it decides who to match with who based on how well you behave in the Zima, in the Zima credit score. So it's exactly the same logic. So basically it's it's not just about matching elites with elites. It's partly that it's partly sustaining a class system by making sure that there's no there's a, a, a clear class divide that doesn't get the relationships don't break out of. Because, of course, one of the interesting things about relationships is that they can do that, right? Everybody likes a bit of rough or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, they, they actually work better usually when there's a class difference. But these try and flatten out. In, in China especially, there's an obsession with flattening out this potential for relationships to disrupt class structure. So there's all that to be said. But also they reward you for certain kinds of behaviour, which is essentially capitalist behaviour and non behavior. So basically the, the love object is withheld from the user until it reaches a certain point. And this is again why you could say Jordan Peterson is not so far away from the logic of you know contemporary dating because uh, this is exactly how it functions. So what, what this example shows, I know I've been talking for a long time, but uh, what this example shows is that out these subcultures that are like going on 4chan or 8chan or places we find quite scary in the you know mainstream world um, are actually not a different symptom from the mainstream reorganization of love and desire. And I think that we we definitely need to, to see that. And, and you know, there's, there's endless articles about, oh, look at these weird incels over here behaving weirdly. Well, the problem is we're all behaving weirdly and we're all being uh, organized in ways and we need to break the back of that mainstream issue rather than criticizing those kind of subcultural groups that seem to us weird but appealing, kind of like fetishes and so on.
1: Well, I wonder. I wonder what my, actually what my attractive value uh, would be then. <laughs> well, based on your voice. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, all right. This is uh, this is the this is the other podcast we were talking about. Let's do this later on.
0: <laughs> so, um yeah, the Patreon content. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> Um, let's move on to your fourth chapter. It deals with apps and interfaces that, makes dis- dis- that make decisions about who we interact with and how. Of course, right. now I can only guess strongly, um, but let's assume you are an Avid smartphone user too. And if so, which apps are your everyday and usage apps? You see, we're talking about gossip right now, basically. And right. what could that tell us about your fourth chapter then?
0: hmm good question let me have a look um yeah i mean historically (laughs) um yeah i I suppose um what do i use i mean i think i think a huge one that we often don't think about and this just very quickly that goes back to the smart cities thing i think a huge one is um is, is google maps um you know i think that this um you know, all of the stuff I said before about Alibaba would be valid to say about Google Maps, you know, and it's probably one of the most, one of my most used, another, but, and, and so there's, there's that, but maybe more interesting to think about um, Spotify and predictive technologies and things like that, also use that a lot, and I think, you know, again, I, I, what we're, it's the same, it's the same point I've already made, but what we're dealing with here is not, you know, it's it's really shifted. I mean, people who have just used like YouTube Music or Spotify. Hopefully, you you guys will will be sort of nodding along. But um, you know, five years ago, it was it was absolutely useless at predicting what you'd what you'd like to listen to. Let's say, you know, and, and some of it was just like it was based on like the name of the person. It was like you like Justin Timberlake, so you might like Justin Bieber. It's like, hang on a minute, <laughs> <laughs> but. But um, but it's totally changed. It is extremely efficient at this. I mean, and there are some, there are lots of reasons why this this happens. And maybe I should talk about some of the kinds of intimate data that get generated and so on. I mean, there are um, some Apple headphones, for example, have or oh, is it Apple? Are they by Apple? The ability to check. Um, it's been a while since I did this, but but the ability to check things like heart rate and. Um, blood pressure uh, so that they can see how you respond to certain sounds within for example some music that's playing and then in theory they can use that um physical response to uh you know sell your product or or recommend you a new song for example um you know in a sense but i want to what i want to say i suppose in answer to this is that i think again i don't think we should stop using these things um because you know so for example a couple of interesting companies on this kind of um in this way as well um is company like the vr companies i suppose i could have answered this before but um you know like um there's one company called within what they do is they use vr to encourage people to give to charity so you put the headset on imagine like comic relief i don't know if you get that in germany actually but like one of these kind of charity ads where you see like a starving african child or something and then it says like can you give money to to, to this child whatever uh then that you'll do that in a vir- virtual reality environment and find like it's about 33 percent more effective at getting people to give money or something like that um, so you know th- these technologies they do have the ability to manipulate you on on the level of the body on the level of feeling and this is again why i think i use psychoanalysis myself which i'm you know i'm I'm not going to talk too much in the in the granular theories of psychoanalysis for the purposes of this but it's really about understanding how these things can't be trusted i mean freud for example thought that the sense of smell was the most ideological of the senses now that's extremely interesting because it's one that we think of as being most impulsive and most kind of biologically driven right so we we, we are repulsed by things generally speaking that are dangerous and so on but um for freud you know really wanted to look at how ideology affects smell for example now this is really interesting there's a company called oris london who are a um they they used, um, all five senses including importantly um, smell and um oh taste because these are the ones usually erased by the digital world like virtual reality porn or whatever um you know which I, i talk about a lot in the book but haven't done today but um, you know it's got touch it's got sight and it's got hearing these are the fundamental pr- um, things but this company is bringing in sight, uh, smell and sound as well and what they do is basically they encourage people to invest in companies so if you've got if you want to host an event you can host it at AORUS London you're going to try you invite all your potentially wealthy investors and then the company use a strategy of how to use technology to manipulate the five senses and make these people more susceptible to giving money in, or investing money into the company fine it sounds crazy it sounds like Black Mirror but These things are happening all the time. This is what I want to say about it through our headsets, through our screens, right through the through the question of what it means to give up your, um, you know, um, give up your sense of agency and sense of um, decision making, outsource it, let's say we are outsourcing a chunk of our decision making to our Phones. The phone is at the center of all of this, of course, or to our computers, or to our headsets, or whatever it might be that we're using. And you know, Freud again said that you know, um, with technology, man had become a god with artificial limbs. You know, I think this is a good description of a smartphone today. It is our artificial limb. We are, in a sense, we're what Donna Haraway, the sort of feminist Marxist critic, thought uh, we would be. We are, we are cyborgs. It's just that she thought we'd be cyborgs. And we would destroy patriarchy and capitalism because we had technology as an ally to see us into a future where we could break out of some of the systems and and, and heterodoxies and, and problems that had become so entrenched in social life. But actually, that hasn't happened at all. Um, we've, um, you know, we've, we've become cyborgs, but only to serve a certain kind of capitalist overlord, not to serve ourselves or our own politics, I would say. Um, so... Yeah, very difficult to know um, what what to do here. And um, that's actually well, well, but that's actually a good
1: a good point for the uh, for my next for my next question because now having heard all this and this almost creepy and nightmarish stuff um, on your way through the final pages of your book, you offer you do actually offer a playful pitch that suggests how these technologies might be used differently with a more progressive uh, agenda in mind and of course you're more than welcome now to pitch these very ideas to our listeners
0: (laughs) i mean maybe just one um i mean so i did i did three things i mean actually i could probably do it really quickly um i mean one one of them i mean so what i wanted to do as you say it's mostly playful it's not serious so you know people don't need to like (laughs) invest in these companies um but um you know, one simple idea was a wearable, you know, I'm really interested in wearable devices. I think they are, you know, they are one of these things I've been talking about that uses your health data to, uh, you know, and the problem with with um, wearables, you know, like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit is that they are like self-help. They basically turn everything in on you and say, you, you're a subject in capitalism, you're suffering, you need to um, do X, Y, Z uh, in order to sort of deal with life in capitalism sure you get enough sleep make sure you do enough exercise make sure you eat the right things and so on now i mean in in a sense fair enough you've got to, you've got to survive right so if it works for you it works for you but on the other hand um you know it's the reverse logic of what i would really like to see you know we, we what we have on our, our like capitalism writes its trauma into our bodies and so on so like you know if we're you know really so my idea was that we would have wearables but they would be for workers to wear Uh, in the workplace, and employers would be responsible for making sure that the data from these wearables was within a safe range. So instead of us always turning capitalism in on ourselves, thinking, okay, what do I need to do to survive? You would actually have the safety of having uh, a wearable on, and your employer would be, you know, compelled to make sure that you, uh, you know, not uh, suffering too much in your working conditions and so on. So that, that was just one one idea um but the other the other thing and then I, I did another one which was a, a kind of video game um you know uh, which uh which I think had some other interesting w- reasons to exist but the, the the other thing I think is worth talking about more is the, is the, the sort of dating app because this has really been at the heart of what we've been talking about here like how do we meet people and so on ha- and, and how would we want to do that in a, in a better different way um you know so you know I think um, and let, let me try and contextualise this in a good way. I think we're in a real problem politically because you've got an enormous, enormously powerful set of capitalist overlords, for want of a better word, which basically mean you're living in a new dystopia where your your very impulses are being controlled by corporations and they're no longer yours, right? So that's one of the problems in which we've spent most of our time talking about. Another problem is that we've also got this liberal sort of woke culture let's say which is absolutely adamant on eroding everything that's got any kind of semblance of traditionalism within it whatsoever and which is obsessed with partitioning people off into groups so for example in the run in the trump election run we had two trump dating sites that came out Uh one was called trump dot dating that was the biggest one um, now that seems to me then like precisely what the right would do right it would want to group its own together Get the republicans dating each other and mobilize a a, 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 a passion for the trump administration through connect through a branding connection with desire and sex what's then happened is two or three leftist dating sites have emerged which followed exactly the same logic one of them is i don't know if this is actually coming out but it's called okay comrade um there was one sort of semi human one called Red Yenta, um, but but this is and this is also you have we do have various LGBTQ plus dating sites and so on, queer dating sites. Let's say, and I don't want to be too sort of critical. Of these things it's not really my place. But what's happening here is a, is a social logic of dividing people into groups and keeping them there, and I think this is actually being driven by identity politics of, of the, the liberal left is absolutely obsessed with identity categories saying, I'm, I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm this, you know, these are my, um, these are my pronouns. These are my conditions. This is my identity. And for me dating um, could and can be, you know, if you want to put it in a more romantic way, love could or can be something which escapes that rational logic of identity categories like we said before about the question of class in dating apps you know does doesn't it often eroticism depend precisely on class difference and therefore isn't love one of the few ways in which you can't be captured by palantir or cambridge analytica and and forced into xyz group or pattern and what we what we get what we get is a sort of in internet studies people sometimes call this cyber balkanization or um, splinternet, but I guess the common parlance for that is just filter bubble. But what we get is these desire bubbles, right, where the right, there's some people on the right who are a certain class are in one box, some people on the left with a certain sexual preference are in one box, some people who are liberal centrists, you know, with traditional family values are in another box. Now, it's because we've become this oppositional culture desperate to... um, deny any contradiction or complexity in ourselves and just turn ourselves into oppositional categories um, and groups who can easily see the other and see themselves reflected or not reflected in it. And and so I tried to create an idea, it would take a lot of pages to explain, of how a dating site would work which did not have this bubbling up aspect that's become inherent to dating sites, but also the logic of contemporary society, right? And would actually allow us to not just meet random people because obviously we need some help here. We could, we need to use data and, and algorithms to help us. We want to, these things to, to a certain extent work, right? But how could we create something which didn't just use random data, but which also didn't box us off into these little kind of identity categories that we seem to do. And I think that would be a, a great thing to try and, to try and do actually.
1: Yeah. Did you actually because um did you actually uh, use the term uh, Splinternet also in your book because I feel somehow maybe I just skipped that part because it's such a it's a it's a really powerful term, I think, and I never heard it before and if you have used it, then it's uh strictly my
0: fault because then obviously I just yeah, yeah. read over it <laughs> I did I did um and uh, I did uh, um, I don't know seven times apparently. Um, No, I didn't. I didn't a very quick. Oh yeah, the dating app bit. Um, But um, but no, but that's very good reading. I I haven't read a book properly in years, so um, (laughs) don't worry. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, so I suppose the idea of it is interesting, isn't it? It's the because this goes back to what I was saying earlier in the conversation about I still like the idea of the internet as a commons. Right. So in the basically in the 2000s, when the Internet came into everyone's house it's before what we, people call Web 2.0. I know we, we're in Web 3.0 or whatever. It might be. But, um, you know, before then, in the mid, in the, mid to, in the early 2000s, when Internet, when the Internet became a staple part, you know, early broadband or late 56K Internet, you know, people really felt that this was going to destroy um, a lot of the divides between people and things and of course one of the things interesting about the digital digital content is that it doesn't have scarcity um so the, the idea of a commons an internet commons comes from the idea that there wouldn't be scarcity in the digital age of course there's some scarcity you need to eat so you gotta have food but maybe i may be soylent or something but i don't know but but um but yeah with a digital object with a piece of art for example or a film or whatever it might be or a game um, there's no limit to how many of those copies that can be so you know in, a, in an old commons you'd have a, a commons of scarcity for example if there was a well in a village right um, each person who took a bucket of water out of the well there'd be one less bucket of water left in the well so you'd have a problem with scarcity and you'd have to manage that as a commons but with the digital commons is this idea sort of you know appeared of you know the the idea of a digital commons which had no scarcity built into it now obviously we've we've lost that and and for example something like nfts that's the reintroduction of scarcity into the uh infinite commons because it it could there's no reason why anyone should own this and why it should have a value but there's a desperate attempt to to reintroduce scarcity into the system so that you know it can be capitalized but anyway so what you then move away from is the idea of a commons into a splinternet and splinternet is basically it seems like you're all there together but you're not you're more divided than ever and there's all questions about the nation to be had we're all on facebook but you know and let me let me tell one more quick story um when um, brexit was happening now was this my dad or my mum i think it was one of my dad's friends um yeah my 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 dad's friend uh, was staying at his house my dad was certain that Brexit wasn't going to happen because he'd been on Facebook. Right. <laughs> now his friend is a kind of, um, uh, Brexiteer type, uh, don't, don't have many friends like that, but you know, don't, don't write off. I mean, I actually, I didn't, I didn't vote either way myself, but that's another story. Um, but, um, but yeah, anyway, so very different. Right? My dad had only seen the liberal response. It seemed like Brexit would never happen. One day his friend logged into Facebook on his, in his house and left it on. And when he went to log in, it was accidentally logged in on his friend's account. And he suddenly, suddenly rang me up saying, Alfie, it's going to happen. I've just seen it. You know, And this is what the splinter net is. It's it's the fact that we think we're in this together, but we couldn't be further apart from each other. And it's how politics functions. It's how it's how politics functions today. It's how and it's how people on all sides of the political spectrum get so alienated from each other because they almost don't know that the other exists anymore. So yeah. yeah. I was curve. just thinking
1: about you were, you were mentioning you were mentioning the um, the brexiteer kind of type and I thought I recently stumbled across uh, a piece of media talking about our difficulties but that's a whole other topic but it just crossed my mind uh, our difficulty to to really take the term brexiteer into our mouth and use it but without not being able to to just let it stand for it on its own and we have to also we have to uh, combine it with the brexiteer type of guy because it somehow feels some um, uh too normative almost you know what yes. i mean yeah.
0: yeah absolutely no and i agree and i and i just just to finish the brexit thing and it's, it's a great example actually of, of what we've been talking about in a certain sense and and the same for the vaxxers and anti-vaxxers it. You know, I mean, I, I think it was complicated. I don't want to talk about Brexit. Obviously, it's not our place. But like, you know, I, I was partly subscribed to Jeremy Corbyn's kind of initial idea of a, a left exit, a lexit. I thought some of those arguments were good. You know, it was actually extremely complicated. And you've also got, has Brexit happened? Brexit in name only and so on. In actual fact, these things are extremely complicated. And this is also to do with desire. But when we think of Brexiteer, we think of, you know, basically a fat guy with a red face, with a pint of Carling and an England flag living in Essex or whatever. You know, and and this is because this is precisely because of the way in which we connect Internet uh, identity with desire and, and so on and how we can't. We can't complicate these things anymore. We ha- we have to sort of see them as these kind of categories. And the weirdest thing is, like, that's how the technology works. You know, that's what Cambridge Analytica were doing. They were relying on the assumption that if you drink a latte, you're more likely to vote for Keir Starmer. Now, that that's incredible. That that's true. It is true. <laughs> but but we obviously need to think about these things in a different in a different way. You know, to this. Um, but yeah, no, so so anyway, I mean, it's all very interesting to discuss those things. And and I think that hopefully, like, you know, it, it showed the way this conversation has gone, you know, hopefully it shows that like when we're talking about video games and data and online dating and so on, it's, it's really not. And this is one of the things I really wanted to try, at least in, in this book, you know, that um, this is not about dating apps actually it's about everything it's about you know h- how we relate as, as, as you said at the beginning you know how we relate to politicians how we relate to friends how we relate to food how we relate to you know the, these technologies are, are having an impact on all of these aspects of life and, and we at least at least need to to recognize that right well
1: I've taken up a lot of your time, then Alfie. So maybe we can briefly discuss uh, what are you what are you working on right now? And of course, circling back to digital games, of course, what will you be uh, playing next?
0: Mm. Great question. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I haven't been working. Should I say this? I'm not really working very hard, actually. <laughs> <laughs> In all honesty. <laughs> 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 no I'm, I'm i'm sort of right i'm i'm thinking of i mean I've, I've started writing a novel and i would like to do that um and i'm, I'm, I'm you teacher. heard it here first yeah, yeah, you did actually, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I'm I'm teaching as well at the, at the moment. A few different um, projects. I'd like to do something on conspiracy theory. You know, I really I, I think some of what we were talking about connects this as well. You know, I'm interested in how we um, are so quick to dismiss people with different. Uh, views and positions to our own, and, and conspiracy theory as a kind of critical um, sort of turning point for this. Because on the one hand, we absolutely need conspiracy theories to show us how, you know, awful the BBC or whatever the equivalent where you are and everyone else's is, is. Um, But obviously, on the other hand, they 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 do themselves become these kind of mad um, c- communities as well. So I'd love to do something on conspiracy theory, but I'm just um, I'm just at the point of thinking and, and chatting about it. So if people have recommendations and stuff. That'd be great. And video games, you know, maybe I should this summer. You know, take some time to play one. Um, what do I play? I'm, I don't. I don't. So, I mean, I. I it's weird. I, I didn't really give up until sort of I did that book. I felt like um, publishing a book on video games was a nice kind of line to draw under.
1: <laughs> video oh. Games.
0: <laughs> oh what has happened my gosh what are you playing what do you what do you think i should play
1: <laughs> well um i'd recommend uh, that's a little it's a little and tiny but a very lovely game it's called south of the circle if i'm not Ooh, wrong okay. and um, it's a very um, narrative driven game small team it has an excellent voiceover voiceover cast and and it's really heartbreaking. And it also um, has a lot to do with um, the work conditions in academia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, right.
0: yeah, south of oh, yeah, the South. This looks great. This, this was really interesting. So that would be my tip for today. I mean, I still, I mean, I still teach games. We So we have a degree in video games at my university, and I, I do teach on that degree. So, you know, yeah, I'm very much still interested in, in this stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, this looks good. Well, there you go. You're going to get a recommendation from all of your guests and then you've got this kind of yeah, interesting list of
1: Well, anyway, I really, thank you for being on the show today. It was a great pleasure and enjoyed it very much. And all the tiny detours we were also managing to, to include. So
0: um, I'd like to say take care. and yeah, thank you. Yeah. Goodbye, Alfie. Thanks for having me so much. It's been really interesting. Thanks, Rudolf.